Welcome to Technovation. I'm your host, Peter High. My guest today is Eve Behar. Eve is an influential and highly decorated industrial designer and entrepreneur. He's the founder, chief executive officer, and principal designer of Fuse Project, a leading product design and branding firm, which he founded in 1999. Eve's also the co-founder and chief creative officer of August, a next-generation home entry system. Some of his works are sold to Target, while others are included in the permanent collections of world-class museums, such as the Museum of Modern Art in New York. In this interview, we discuss the significance of intentional product design and how it helps companies tell their stories. Eve speaks about how problems that arise after a product's launch can become opportunities for continuous improvement and the methods his teams use to bring designs to market, from team alignment to marketing strategy. Finally, Eve talks about his team's work on the Vox ventilators to aid efforts related to COVID-19 as a response to an open innovation challenge. And he offers reflections on the importance of letting teams rather than leaders drive ideas at times, among a variety of other topics. But let me begin, Eve, with um, just a bit more background from you. Maybe you could talk a little bit about what inspired you to get into industrial design in the first place. Well, you know, I was a I was a teenager in Switzerland, and um, I was very very interested in change and um, you know in changing the world. That's what teenagers you know are into, <laughs> and um, and design seemed to be a way that I could do that both um, you know both with sort of products and experiences, uh, but also with ideas. And um, initially, when I was when I was 12 years old or 13 years old or so, I wanted to be a writer. I wanted to write stories. But uh, later, as I started to make things in my parents' basement uh, before going to study design, um, I realized that you could tell stories with objects. You could tell stories with, um, with products and experiences. And um, it's, it's never been more true today that uh, that's the case. Right? We, live in a, we live in a world where your product, your offering, your features um, are really what people base their judgment of your company on, not the advertising. Um, and so, um, you know, it's, it's uh, storytelling continues to be really, really important um, in our design work. Um, and what, what I think I've done is what we've done in the last 20 years, since you noted that, that Fuse Project's been around for 20 years, um, is really combined, fused together all the different disciplines of design, strategy, graphic and brand uh, and packaging, as well as digital uh, or environments, um, really merge all these together so that story that you're telling is consistent um, so that um, you, know, you don't have elements that just pull people away from really what you're trying to say. Um, you know, so it's all, it's all one story. Um, all experience in different ways. Uh, but design is, is a key to telling that story. Um, and that's the idea that got me started in design. And um, it's still the idea that keeps me going today. You've noted uh, in our last conversation together that you operated at the intersection of culture and commerce. And, mm -hmm. and it's interesting, you, you have, I mentioned before, you have uh, works that, that are in the permanent collections of art museums. You also have work that's in Target. Uh, and you've also mentioned, I wanted to quote you here, that you always felt that brands we work with, uh, the work should be strong enough and so valuable that it can be sold in both a high-end context and in tens of thousands of retail shops. And that, that seems like a bit of a paradox, Eve. Um, how do you design for both of those contexts? And how do you assemble a team to provide both of those contexts as well? So it's always been a core belief that, you know, for me, that design tends to equate exclusivity, high-end, expensive, 
hence to equate, um, you know, a, 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 a world that is uh, closer to luxury than to, you know, mainstream needs. And um, it, there, nothing could be uh, more wrong as a perception, but that's a perception that's being perpetuated by the media and often designers themselves. Um, um, you know, to me, design, the definition of design is just um, intent, you know, the original, what is your intent? Um, and to me, whether you're working on, you know, we worked on Nivea, for example, a, a brand that half a billion people um, touch every day, um, you know, uh, probably the largest uh, personal care brand in the world. And, you know, we, we worked on products that are you know, both on the rebrand, so the, the new logo, the new um, look and feel, as well as the, uh, the products itself. So the thousands of SKUs um, that got affected by this uh, rebrand and redesign effort. And there's nothing that makes me more proud than people picking something up on the shelf at a, at a, at a, at a Target or a Safeway and saying, oh, you know, this is, this is, this is the classic that I like. This is what I um, you know, this is this is the company I remember from my childhood, and one the successful you know rebrand uh, was that six months after we launched, people were like, "Oh, the logo's always been like that." When we asked them about the change and was it harder to find the product on shelf, etc., they're like, "Oh no, it's always been like this." We we placed the Nivea logo in a circle, um, and which was the right uh, storytelling element based on their hundred year uh, history. Um, and consumers felt it was, it had always been that way. So very, you know, you, when, when you have a successful brand at the mainstream level, um, that same need for uh, consistency, for um, the right storytelling, for, you know, your design work and brand work to really inscribe itself within, um, within the culture and within the history of the company, um, those are, you know, those are su successful outcomes. But to me, these outcomes are the same, whether we're doing some experimental work with Swarovski in Europe or whether we're doing um, something with Nivea or Nestle, who are our everyday staple, you know, uh, companies and products. Interesting. And I know no two clients or no two engagements are alike, but I imagine that there's, you know, some, uh, there's some sort of vision that a client may come to you with. Uh, and then you take that and play around with it. And, and obviously you and your team uh, put your fingerprints on, on what has been brought to you. Uh, as I say, no two are alike. So I, I know it might be difficult to generalize, but I'd be interested to understand what that creative process is like then from that point, after you've heard what they, they're hoping to do, what they're hoping to have designed. How do you use that input? How do you bring some of your own sort of uh, past experiences, your own taste uh, to, to, to what it is that you, you, you develop? So the, the range of briefs and approaches from, you know, from, from our partners go from, you know, very well-developed uh, briefs with context and, and, um, and lots of research included um, to, we don't want to give you anything. We want you to come up with something on your own. So, um, so as you said, it's uh, very different depending on, um, on the type of client and what they believe in. But I would say for us, for me personally, it's very important to do the research, to understand the customer, to, to, um, to do everything I can so there is as much sort of knowledge, both about the consumer perception, the market perception, as well as the business, so we can create the value that the business needs. Um, on the other hand, I think, you know, what, we, what I look for is that, you know, that pent up 
uh, desire that exists in society, that exists in the culture, that exists in people, and 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 find how you know these new stories we're going to tell um, through our design work um, are going to re reflect on that. Um, I'll use one example. So I've worked now for about twelve years with Samsung, and the Frame TV. Um, is a product that came out of an exercise at Samsung, which was to move the company from being uh, technology-centric and driven to being experience-centric um, and driven. And so it was a very thematic uh, exercise within the business to, um, to, to make all the different departments really understand um, what it takes to be experience-centric, to be customer-focused. Um, and within that, right after this exercise, um, which was done in, in partnership with the CEO, um, we then um, created a completely new product, which is called the Frame. Um, for the ones who are not familiar with it, it's, um, it's both an art platform and a television. So when, when the TV is off, instead of getting that black screen, which nobody likes, becomes dead, you know, dead space on your wall, um, you have a piece of art, which you've chosen out of collections from all around the world, um, including museums who have now joined the platform. Um, and that, as a product, came out of this thematic, you know, uh, exercise within Samsung, as well as some insights that we had. People didn't want, in smaller apartments, the smaller environments that they live in, people didn't want, uh, you know, ever larger screens. Um, they want their homes to be well curated, to reflect who they are. Um, and so what we saw was a pent-up demand for something that nobody wanted or nobody expected, but um, in the sense that, you know, if you had told people, well, what do you think of the black screen on your TV, they would have said, well, you know, that's just the way it is. That's the way it's always been, you know, from, from the 50s on, you turn the TV off and you have a black screen. Um, but instead, we, we tapped into that pent-up demand and the product today, when you turn it off, there's a piece of art there. And the piece of art is affected by the light and we put sensors in it. It, it it's, a, it's a really exciting innovation. But today, the CEO actually last week of Samsung said, this is the one innovation that has transformed our business that has given a different line of business compared to just making it the biggest possible, the thinnest possible, the brightest possible, which is kind of the, the ammo that the company has pursued for um, you know, to, to gain their leadership position. But now that, you have in the, that you're in this leadership position, what else do you do to really connect to people as other brands are also, you know, getting bigger screens, thinner screens and brighter screens, you know, competition always shows up at some point um, on the technical side of things. So, so this um, is sort of an example of, for me, of how really kind of understanding these impossible um, uh, seemingly impossible solutions for unmet, you know, desires, um, you know, can create um, completely new lines of business um, for companies that are very established, you know, like a Samsung who's dominant in TVs globally. I wanted to ask you, um, what are the sorts of things that you do uh, in order to inspire your own creativity? Are there certain activities that, that tend to be better for you? Are there certain spaces you go to? Is there a routine that you like to follow? Um, the extent to which you can sort of offer a little bit of a formula, at least for what works for you, Eve. Um, you know, for me, and, and this has been, you know, particularly um, 
you know, brought to light during COVID. Um, since, you know, we, it's actually now, I think in a couple of days, the anniversary of being 12 months away from the office for my team and I, we're, we're a team of 75 people or so. And, um, you know, for me, creativity has always happened anywhere. Um, it really, you know, it doesn't happen. It doesn't have to happen in my office or at my desk. Um, what I get inspired to, though, isn't so much a, um, a language of forms or visuals or looking at nature, you know, and um, it's really much more about the big ideas that are out there and how transformative those ideas would be if they were well designed. I think one of the core responsibilities um, as a designer is really we, you, you see these emerging ideas that are critical in the 21st century, you know, uh, the electrifying of, um, of, of, of the grid and our vehicles, the, um, you know, sustainability and uh, uh, low carbon footprint uh, type of products and experiences. These are like critical ideas, but if they're badly designed, if, you know, both the business and the product and the features and the offering is badly designed, you as a designer may be actually pushing back that idea, uh, that important, you know, um, generational idea by, you know, by years and decades. And so it's really critical to design these new uh, experiences in ways that they stick. You know, if I, I think about Tesla, you know, a lot of bad electric cars came out before that weren't marketing or marketed right, that were very lowest common denominator. And the whole electric car space was a bit of a joke. I mean, it was, you know, a, a hopeful thing, but not one that we all believed would be, you know, where, where it is now. And so, you know, designing the product right, aiming it at the right type of customer, you know, has created the biggest uh, transformation in the automobile field. And when I think about health and healthcare, when I think about telehealth, when I think about sustainability and the greening of our economy, um, the right design um, is going to be different for all these different companies that are, that are aspiring to connect with their customers. Um, but the winners are going to be the ones who you know, really tap into, um, into, the, into the culture and the mindset um, uh, and, 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 and make that step forward um, successful. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, that's a long answer. I have a lot of long answers. So, <laughs> no, appreciate that. Um, you going back to your comment regarding finding and fulfilling unmet needs and pent up demand. What's your view on the potential negative impacts that that might have? Um, how do you think about the ethics of design with regard to intent, whose intent, and what that might be based on? So, so again, as as, as you point out right now, the the definition of design, if you if you go back to the origin, the origin of the word is intent. What is your intent? You know, is your intent to um, keep people in an infinite loop of distraction, which is, I think, what you talk about in terms of doom scrolling, um, or is your intent to sort of create a um, an environment that's going to be uh, healthy and um, and um, and really sort of fulfill not, I would say, our you know disease for attention and our need for um, you know, for pictures in the case of social media, um, but, but something, you know, more profound than that. So one of my philosophies, especially in designing for the home, so we've done all these projes, you know, the, the Samsung, the frame, the, 
the uh, August smart lock is to actually when technology enters our lives, I want it to be discreet. I think technology shouldn't be distracting, especially in our you know, home life, in our, in, our, in our home environment. And so you know, the, the, the kids stop asking you to turn on the TV when on the TV is a static, beautiful image of a painting or a photograph. Um, you know, if you're, if you're entering and leaving your home, you can make that, you know, more practical, easier to do. But that, you know, we, my, my big dream was that people would be able to get to their homes and not use their phone or not use a key in order to get in. And I think in this case, you remove complexity, you remove um, um, friction um, in order for people to focus on what's important, you know, being at home, being with their family. Uh, again, sort of getting away from the distraction element. So I think the ethics are absolutely critical and designers have a fundamental role to play at the product definition, um, you know, which, which is where you try to steer you know, projects so they will be um, cognizant of, of people's true needs and people's uh, true aspirations. Um, I, think, I think that is critical. I'll use one more example about the ethics of design. Um, and I've been for a few years now, we do a number of, um, of sustainability projects uh, with large and, and large companies like L'Oreal and others, uh, Puma, et cetera. And what we discovered, um, and this is not, that doesn't come from us, that comes um, from, 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 from um, institutions who say 80% of the sustainability decisions made in a project happen at the design phase meaning the early phase of uh, creation and development and execution. Um, and so designers are there. Designers have the ability to advocate, to push for the right materials, the right processes, um, to open up um, the possibilities to, to, to create something that will be uh, more envir environmentally conscious. Um, and so I think it's absolutely critical, you know, that role that the designer has early on. I wouldn't say we're able to steer and make all the decisions, but we're certainly able to uh, influence and, um, and give a point of view that has more to do with the human and with their needs rather than, um, I think, you know, a quick sort of technology win, for example, um, that, that, um, you know, that may not have longevity. Um, thank you, Eve. Staying for a moment longer on the point regarding sustainability. You work with the product design team behind SodaStream, a product that uh, has a lot of emphasis on sustainability. Could you take a moment and talk about how sustainability plays into design and ultimately how you choose the projects you and your team work on? Sure. I mean, so so SodaStream was uh, such a fascinating, you know, experience. They were they were purchased uh, in two thousand seven or eight by a private equity group in London. They were it's a old business, hundred year old business. Um, but that was, wasn't well run and, you know, was going away and, um, they were purchased for, you know, uh, not a lot of money. And, um, and then we proceeded, um, the chief innovation officer and the CEO came to us and said, look, really to make this product successful, you know, we have, you know, we need to sort of communicate differently. We need to communicate how many bottles, plastic bottles are saved in a year between 500 and 1,000, depending on the household, by not purchasing those plastic bottles. And I thought that was extraordinary. That was amazing. Um, and I got really excited about partnering with them. But the other thing that, that you know, we, I realized is, well, the way the product was made, 
and the way it was uh, manufactured and the kind of philosophy of, of how it was put together wasn't green at all in, you know, back then. And I was like, well, you know, thematically this company is doing the right thing. And, and, and absolutely, I mean, I've, I was, before even working with them, I was trying to convert all my friends who like fancy, you know, Italian sparkling water to, to convert to something, um, uh, you know, more, you know, more, uh, more respectful of, um, of the planet. Um, and so I, I was already a fan of that. But then when I realized that every product made by SodaStream was painted, for example. So, you know, like uh, that, that was a philosophy within the company. You take a plastic part and you make it cheaply with a cheap material, but then to hide the flaws of it, to hide, you know, the fact that you didn't use the, the, a great manufacturer or molder and, um, and using cheap plastic, then you paint it, uh, you paint the whole thing. Um, and I was like, <clears throat> I, I made a bet with uh, the CEO and the, the head of engineering, which is look, if we switch to not painting, I'm, you're gonna be paying more money for the material you're going to pay more money for uh, the tooling, um, but those costs are going to be completely offset by the fact that you have that whole painting, you know, process. I didn't really use an argument of, well, I did say it's more sustainable, but I didn't count on that argument to, you know, for for a CEO and head of logistics and engineering to 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 be their decision maker. And then what came, what came back, we, we switched to better materials, to better molding machines, um, and had essentially the color embedded into the plastic itself. And suddenly we had an entire line that was not painted at all. Um, and um, while I had proposed that they would give me the difference in cost between the painting and the manufacturing uh, <clears throat> um, as, a, as part of the bet, um, they didn't do that, and which was uh, totally uh, fine, but but um, but they switched the entire production, and so this is like an invisible intervention as a designer, right? We never went out and talked about that um, to the press or uh, as a business. We just helped optimize the business, both for the right uh, sustainability outcome um, as well as price point. Um, and I think you know, so this is this to illustrate that every project can be improved upon if you have that mentality. If you, um, if you, not just projects that are deemed sustainable, but every project you work on, there's these um, small and bigger opportunities to, um, to, to, to green the, um, the whole operation. And I think as designers, we need to, we need to look at that um, all the time, whether, whether the project has a sustainability story to start with or not. Mm, very interesting. I, I wanted to ask you about uh, your engagement with the end users of products you design. Uh, there are plenty of ways companies can access data on consumers and the way they use products, but there's a lot of value in seeing the specific ways customers engage with the product. Uh, I wonder if you have seen any changes in terms of how companies you work with stay close to their end users, especially during these most unusual times. Yeah, yeah. No, I agree. And, and it's, um, it's a huge part of the feedback loop. You know, you want to create, you want to innovate, but you want to make sure that you care that, that people are coming along um, that, uh, that that innovation, and in fact, refer it to what was there before. And it 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 requires the biggest uh, lesson I've learned 
you know, I've used a few examples from big company work, but the, 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 um, the truth is, is about 50% of our work is with startups. At the big company level, at the startup level, you really need to um, kind of continually improve upon your product. And that kind of research, both at the start to understand who you're going to speak to, but down the line um, is it's, it's a continuum. And I, you know, for example, I would, I would only, um, I would attribute the success of August, which became number one uh, in a new space. It's still number one today and has the most, you know, four and a half plus stars on the, on Amazon as far as customer satisfaction. Well, we started at two stars, you know, we started at like, oh, you know, we may not make it. And by continually um, uh, both interviewing, as you described, you know, in person and uh, doing our um, uh, analyze, you know, doing an, an analytics on the use of the software, um, you know, we we continually improved upon it, um, and 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 that work basically what I say is like design work is never done. You 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 launch a product and you keep uh, improving on it. I think in the in COVID times. Um, We've done a lot of Zoom interviews, which you know uh, we've done a, a lot of uh, sharing screens, um, you know, being being with you know with people and around people on Zoom, and it's actually quite effective. And I think um, you know the, there is something about observation in person, but I do think that uh, people have also become more available to to work with you on Zoom. You know, going into people's homes or offices. There's a certain process to that. So we've, uh, we've been able to start, finish, develop, research projects um, in the last 12 months um, without ever sitting with somebody in person, not even you know, our clients and partners. Um, and so I see some positive in terms of accelerating the ability to have more feedback you know, through online interactions um, and, um, and more participation uh, and sometimes doing it, you know, sort of faster and more efficiently. And I see that in the future, it will be a hybrid. I've also come across some companies, uh, a couple of companies that I'm, I'm uh, um, getting involved with that actually have ongoing testing as part of the development of products. So rather than building something and testing it, um, having it happen in parallel, and I'm happy to forward you a couple of names of some of these exciting new startups that provide that. Interesting. I, I'd like to continue with that point on transforming the August Smart Lock Eve, which, as you mentioned, began as a two-star launch on Amazon and then turned into a successful four-and-a-half-star product. Uh, I wonder to what extent uh, you get called in to help with these product design transformations as a sort of extreme makeover. Uh, could you take a moment and speak about your process in doing so, please? We spent about a year working on the experience creating IP around the the you know changing of your own lock, um, this self-replacement um, that we created, um, and it was we knew this was our biggest challenge to tackle, and we knew it was a, our biggest obstacle at launch. So you anticipate some of these when 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 you're lucky, I think, um, or when you're perceptive, um, um, and so we were sort of ready. We knew we you know we were we had these sort of obstacles ahead of us, and that. You know, we maybe tested with a few hundred, you know, thousand users, and but once they, you know, once once it launches, there's all kinds of new scenarios, um, as well as new uses that happen. So the interesting thing is we noticed certain people were really using it, using August, 
for something we hadn't anticipated. For example, um, a lot of uh, parents of teenage kids uh, really liked seeing when they are at work when their kids make it home. Uh, and so, so every time their, their teenage kid would make it home around, you know, I don't know, after school, around 3 or 4 p.m., um, the parents are like, okay, great. And they can send a little reminder, you know, don't forget to do this and that. And so th this, we realized that um, people were using the product a little differently and could build uh, interaction and visibility of that as well as alarm. So we built a feature, which is, oh, you know, send me a notification every time the cleaning lady or, um, or my kid or this person comes into the house. Um, so I can, you know, monitor them and instruct them. I would say part of it is fixing the problems. Um, and the other part is looking for opportunities when the problems are revealed to you, right? When, when, when things, you know, when, when problems and issues and friction happens, uh, it can also open up some completely new, um, new opportunities and new features. So, you know, is it, I mean, extreme makeovers, <laughs> I would say in the case of Nivea, when we came into the company, they wanted us to do this work. At the same time, the board members said, you know, we give you 10% chance of succeeding. <laughs> so you're like, okay, well, you're flying me over here every other week, you know, all the way to, to Germany from San Francisco. Um, and my odds are pretty low of succeeding, um, you know, and you take that as, I guess, a challenge. Um, but it also, I, I think the, the more likely way you will succeed is to be a good, in, in those extreme makeovers, is to be a, a good listeners and coming back quickly with, um, um, with a way to get these groups of people, these boards, uh, this executive team, CEOs, to really fall in love with an idea. I know I'm being long here, but I want to add one more thing. If you try to have people fall in love with an aesthetic, with a form, with a shape, with a visual, with a color, right off the bat, I think it's much harder because opinions diverge. Uh, executive teams, boards have uh, come from different backgrounds, have different opinions. But if you have them fall in love with an idea, and this is where the like I'm coming back to the storytelling, um, you can always refer back to this idea and say. Well, here is an execution of the idea. You love the idea. You, you gathered your team. Everybody agreed upon this idea of what this brand should be. Now the design comes in. And I think that's, for me, being the biggest um, you know, success-based uh, um, kind of process and approach is I always tell that to my team. Let's have them fall in love with the idea, get the consensus around the idea, then we can bring the aesthetic in the form. I'd like to ask you, as we come out of what has been a challenging period during the pandemic, what do you see as being the biggest change outside of the office that COVID may bring in terms of design? I think, I think you know, COVID, while COVID has been a, um, you know, a, a really sort of dramatic and terrible um, uh, year plus for, uh, for a lot of people, um, it's also revealed some important new things. I think there's been a lot of silver lining across the board. Um, I think one of them is how it's accelerated um, the, the implementation and the belief that um, 
that technology in the case, for example, health and healthcare with telehealth, uh, with you know remote work, uh, it's except you know it's probably accelerated by a factor of ten years um, the adoption and the belief that you know we should move forward with a better distributed you know healthcare system and a and a way for people to um, you know get their vitals and get their uh, health checks you know done remotely. I mean, we've always said that you know going to the hospital is probably you know the part that's the most dangerous part of being sick. You know. Um, um, and so, and, and people agree, people in the healthcare system agree, but the inertia of large systems like this, um, I think has been partially unlocked in the last year um, by, you know, by, by, by this crisis. So I, you know, for me, I have a huge passion for health and healthcare, um, how to bring technology to not just the comfortable middle part of life, you know, but to the aging, to young parents, to babies, to uh, children that are on the spectrum. And a lot of our uh, AI and robotics work currently uh, is in that space. And there's nothing more rewarding, I think, as a designer when, you know, what you're doing isn't just a gadget that makes life more fun for people, uh, but is really something that becomes a core need um, for, for somebody who is in need, for somebody who um, you know, who, who, who has a huge life improvement because they're able to walk or because they're able to communicate better. Uh, they're less lonely because, um, because, you know, their baby is getting more sleep, for example, in the case of the snoo, the happiest baby snoo. Um, so, you know, for me, I think a lot of people have been kind of putting their lives in perspective and saying, well, I want to do something. I want to make something that that makes a difference. And I think that, that I think the workforce, you'll see in the workforce, um, I think people who are eager to go back to work uh, in person, but also who uh, have acquired a new sense of, you know, the meaning of life. And, you know, if I can be that broad there. Fascinating. You mentioned the different kinds of products you'd help design. And I wonder if there are any specific areas or industries that you primarily focus on, Eve, and additionally, how active you are in the marketing of the products you design. One of our mantras is that we're um, uh, specialized in being diverse, you know, very diversified. So we work across many different industries. Um, as I said, from from things that sit on mainstream shelves to things that may be more, um, you know, done with with manufacturers like Herman Miller, for example, the chair I'm sitting on, um, you know, all the way to um, to to products that are very sort of focused and uh, on certain needs so we're we're actually proudly you know very diverse um, i don't believe that the best photograph of you know a pizza is done by a pizza photographer um, you know i think i think you 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 need that fresh point of view you know for us we think that large you know large companies um, want the sort of professional delivery also want um, uh, a spirit of innovation that exists in startups. And because we do 50% of startups, we, you know, pretty much every large company that comes to us wants that change and innovation, and they want us to help it drive it through the organization. Now, once, once you've designed that new experience, for, the, for example, the, the frame TV, um, it was certainly challenging for, you know, Samsung to think about, oh, how are we going to now market something where 
you know, all of our marketing is always about the pixels and the brightness and the thinness and, you know, the size, right? And the wow moment. Um, and so it, 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 we were very close, we participated very closely to how to roll out the product. We actually curated the content for it because it needed to have a lot of integrity and diversity because this is a global product. So you have artists from all around the world that, that participate from all across different mediums. Um, and, you know, I think, I think to, because we kept that integrity, I mean, you know, you come up with a new idea and somebody in the room, you know, isn't fully as plugged in into the world that you, that you're bringing to the client. And so somebody in the room at Samsung said, well, you know, why don't we just get content from art.com? You know, art.com is these posters um, of, you know, basically it's like more posters and art, uh, which is totally fine, but it wouldn't be a, um, it wouldn't be a kind of global cultural experience and movement that we were looking for. And so you do have to be present. And I, that's why we have a brand and communication team. We tend to be very, very involved um, um, throughout. Sometimes, you know, we even, um, do the communication. I wouldn't say I wouldn't say that's our core, uh, and we do that very often. But startups don't really have, you know, the the, the budgets and uh, the ability to hire multiple firms. So we've done many launches, um, many videos, many communication efforts, you know, to to put our startups on the map. We work a lot with PR as well because um, when you have a new product, new idea, new experience, PR is is the best way to communicate that in many ways. Um, but I, I, I would say the other factor is in today's world, traditional advertising doesn't connect with this generation of consumers that are used to, um, you know, for the product to speak for itself. You know, when you look at these new brands that have launched, you know, it's more about connecting with an audience, with a fan base, with um, you know, with, with, with the right customer and then expanding that rather than hammering a message that often can be disconnected from the product or the experience around that product. So I think we live in a world now that is product centric. Everybody has an opinion about the design, about how it looks, about how it feels, about how it works. And you have to tap into that rather than telling people what to think. Eve, I uh, just want one last question here before we let you go. I wanted to just briefly ask you about the, uh, the Vox ventilator, uh, something that you and your team in partnership yeah. with others uh, 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 put together as a response to an open innovation challenge. Maybe you can take just a couple of minutes and, and give us an overview of that, please. Yeah, so this was the, the early days of COVID. You know, suddenly from one day to the next, we were, we were well prepared, but still it was a shock. You know, people couldn't come to the office. We were all working at a distance. The news were devastating. Um, and, you know, we felt... It's hard to, you know, and I'm sure people on your team as well. It's hard to feel like you're on the sidelines, you know, when you when you're a team, men and women of action that that are used to making things happen and solving problems. It's hard to 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 feel like there's nothing we can do. This is out of our hands. And so the team, uh, my team, really, the, the credit goes to them had all these initiatives. We, we, we created informational posters with a brand team. And then the industrial design team came to me and said, look, ventilators, we think we can, we think we can uh, respond to the challenge of cost and time to market um, and complexity and safety of ventilators. Um, 
And I was like, sure, I'm sure a lot of people are working on that. And they're like, well, we, 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 we started talking to Mass General Institution and, and some of the doctors and the nurses there. And, you know, the input, the feedback is really great. So we partnered with a engineering firm and within a, a month came back with a fully functioning solution, which uh, meant that the ventilator could be assembled in four hours. Um, it would cost under $1,000 made of open source parts, but um, with a new interface that made it much safer. The problem with ventilators, besides, you know, getting more of them and accessing more of them back then, was the fact that a lot of mistakes were being made. Uh, the interfaces of uh, healthcare devices are all over the place. And um, I wouldn't say, I would say not designed with, you know, the sensi sens sensitivity that, you know, you have when you look at, you know, uh, our phones and our watches and that the simplicity and ease of use there wasn't, wasn't in place. So a lot of mistakes were made and, 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 and really bad outcomes happen when you turn a ventilator off by mistake and walk out of the room. Um, and so um, we developed the project really quickly. We um, were one of the top two um, uh, submissions to that challenge and it's now in FDA approval um, for actually in developing uh, places like uh, the FD, uh, African FDA. Um, because the need for those uh, simpler, lower cost um, devices is very real over there as well. So, you know, what I would say is like, we tend to be more, as designers, we tend to be both proactive and reactive. Um, and um, it felt immediately like, oh, you know, we can, it, you know, the, the sort of depression of like being out of, you know, out of work, out of the action, out of being able to, to intervene and, 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 and help um, immediately lifted in the entire office. And we, you know, we got really excited and people felt, um, you know, their, their skills and goodwill was being put back to use. So sometimes, you know, I, you have to go, you have to let your team kind of run with the ideas um, and, and, and support them, especially in, in, in hard times like this. So yeah, um, that was, that was a, um, it was a great lesson early on in, in, uh, in, uh, during COVID. And important work that you and your team did. So thank you for that. Well, uh, and, and thank you uh, very much on behalf of all of us Eve, for a great conversation. Thank you for letting us in a bit on, into your own design process, the fruit of the labor of your team and, and yours, just to sort of hear about all the innovative things that you're doing and the, the methods behind them certainly has been, been I, I think, very interesting. I, I hope I'm speaking for everyone. So thank you so much for, for taking right. time with us today. Thank you. Thank you so much. Always good to see you. Thank you so much for taking time.